This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. We don't know how to address him. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to serve him. And we certainly can't trust our own intuition, not the intuition of fallen humanity. We have to go to God himself. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend James Dolzell. And we are both joined today by Dr. Terry Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson has been Senior Minister of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, since 1987. He's written a number of books, many of them on the subject of public worship and and family worship as well. He wrote a book on family worship, and one entitled Reformed Worship, and one entitled Worshiping with Calvin, and we'd commend all of those to our listeners. But today, we want to talk to him about his most recent book, which is on the attributes of God. It's entitled The Identity and Attributes of God and is published by Banner of Truth Trust. So, Terry, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's an honor to have this opportunity. Well, we appreciate it. And I wanted to begin by talking about uh, what you begin with in the book. You say at the beginning that this book is meant to have great continuity. You wrote it in such a way that it has continuity with great Reformed works in the past. In other words, you're not trying to do anything original here in your doctrine. And yet, you also say you felt as if there was a need for a study like this in our day. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the need that you see for revitalizing or reintroducing people to these things that have been written in the past. Well, maybe the process uh, by which it came to be written might be helpful uh, in answering that question. My original intention was in the fall of uh, 2013 to do a 10-part series on the attributes of God with uh, to coincide with the beginning of the college year here in Savannah and with students at the Savannah College of Art and Design beginning their fall term. And I wanted to do so because I was so powerfully influenced by J.I. Packer's Knowing God uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Southern California. I remember I launched into it uh, my junior year and was a bit overwhelmed and put it down and then picked it back up my senior year. And and it, it had such a decisive impact that I ended up writing to Packer in England and asking if I could come and study there. And we exchanged letters. And in September, I left uh, 85 degrees, Southern California's perfect weather, and uh, got off the plane in uh, London, and it was 53 and raining and stayed that way for about the next nine months, um, but uh, in Bristol itself at Trinity College, and there studied with Packer and Mateer and Colin Brown and Joyce Baldwin and a number of others, and it was really just a, a life-changing experience to, one, read the book and then uh, to pursue the study of God further. And so I just felt like that there was a need for that and in our local setting in Savannah. And the 10 sermons uh, grew into 82 sermons. And, and the reason why it did is because the more I read, the more I just saw there was such depths uh, to be plundered, to be explored. And I just could not restrain myself it just went on and on and on, and hopefully I didn't torment my congregation. But the depth of the insights to be found, beginning particularly with Stephen Sharnock among the English Puritans, his 
existence and attributes of God, but uh, a number of others. For example, um, George Swinnick's The Incomparableness of God is maybe the Reader's Digest version of uh, Sharnock. It's 133 pages, but it's absolutely extraordinary. It's just phenomenal. And in Sharnock's case, it goes on for 1,100 pages in the version that I have, and nothing, it seems, gets repeated. It's profound and moving and illuminating page after page after page after page. It's just unbelievable the way he is able to sustain it. And it's, it's uh, you know, author after author, uh, Thomas Boston, Thomas Brooks, it's author after author, page after page. It, it was like these, uh, these men were from another planet, just the depth and the insight, the inspiration, the illumination that came from them. Uh, just led on and on and on. And actually, the book that, that you have, Identity and Attributes, is only half of the book. It's only half of the attributes that we studied, and I'm hoping that Banner will publish a second volume that goes on into grace and mercy and patience and blessedness and spirituality and fatherhood and these other aspects of his identity and attributes. We want to get back to some of those specific influences and those specific authors you mentioned, because some of those names might be unfamiliar. But you talk also about need at a different level in the introduction. You you ask this, I think, provocative question, and I wondered if you could answer it uh, even now for our listeners. You ask this, why do we need to study about God rather than to intuit the truth? I think a lot of people think they know who God is. Uh, I think they understand, think that's a commonly, there's a common definition for who God is, and yet you say, no, we we need to study. Well, I think uh, the Bible is fairly clear, the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, that if we just follow our common sense conceptions, if we just fall back on our own reason, we are certain to fall into idolatry. In other words, God... Um, can only be known through his self-revelation. Uh, we, w- we will get it wrong every time uh, because the, the whole bent and inclination of the human heart is toward idolatry. We suppress the truth of God. We exchange the truth of God. Um, we are naturally haters of God. Uh, so we don't know God and we don't know how to please him. I mean, even the disciples have to say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. We, we don't know how God is to be worshiped. We don't know how to address him. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to serve him. And we certainly can't uh, trust our own intuitions, not the, the, not the intuitions uh, of fallen humanity. We have to go to God himself and, and learn what he says is true of himself and that which pleases him. And that requires study. That doesn't come easily. I'm thinking of Paul's uh, exhortation also to the Colossians where he he offers his prayer for them. And he prays a number of practical things that they would that they would uh, know God's will with spiritual wisdom and understanding. But he also prays uh, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. And you you speak also in the introduction. Beside the need to know Him, uh, you also talk at some length about the current neglect. And you give I, I thought this was uh, especially helpful framing sort of the modern milieu reasons why 
people might neglect the study of God, other than the fact that it's, I mean, you've described Charnock as running in excess of 1,100 pages. I mean, maybe perhaps that alone <laughs> might discourage someone, uh, though they can go to Swinnick and get the, you know, get the shorter version or go to your book and get a more accessible modern English discussion of some of the same things. But maybe that discourages people from studying God, just the sheer magnitude of it. Why? Let's just start with that one. If you were to say to someone, don't be discouraged, what incentives might you give them considering that? Um, well, you know, I would say just as a, at a practical level, I would, I would urge um, those who are intimidated by weighty theological tomes like Sharnock, I would encourage them by, 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 uh, urging the achievable. I would say that Sharnock and uh, Brooks and Swinnick and Baxter's A Divine Life um, and the, the rest are best read at the pace of about three to four pages a day. So if you read three or four pages a day, you, you read a thousand pages in the course of a year. So you can read Sharnock in one year. That's a, that's a worthy endeavor. Given, given the level of inspiration, illumination, challenge that you will receive from reading a Sharnock, I would not put my book in the same category. I'm hoping to encourage other people to, to begin to explore these older works. But I think even my book is best read at a pace of about three to four pages a day. So that in a year, you can read Sharnock. In a year, you can read uh, William Gurnall's uh, Christian in Complete Armor, another just extraordinary work page after page after page after page. It's just his ability to sustain fresh insight, wisdom, poignant expressions. Uh, it's just remarkable. It's just extraordinary. That's what I say. I think they've landed here from Mars. They just seem to be of another race. And we only really learn that the poverty of our own souls when we begin to plumb these depths. And so my, my criticism of our time is that uh, we're, we're living in an age of anti-intellectualism and super-spirituality and uh, pragmatic concerns. And so we're just not given to serious study. And serious study is what is required if we are truly to know God. It takes careful thought and deep thought and contemplation. And in the frenetic pace of life today, and the constant disruptions of uh, technology and smartphones. And uh, we're just not given to serious study. And so we don't get to the depths and we don't know God as we should. And we are not, as a result, as transformed and conformed to God as we ought to be or would be if we devoted more serious, sustained study and thought to God himself, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in, a, in addition to the anti-intellectualism, and I take it that your book is in part an attempt at an antidote to, to that, to encourage Christians to be still and know that he is God. You also mentioned um, some, of, some other liabilities to the study. Um, you, you mentioned briefly impracticality, and then the, uh, another one that you hadn't brought up yet, perhaps uh, super spirituality. How do, those, how do those inhibit or prevent us from, from properly applying ourselves to the study of God? Well, I think Western culture generally, American culture specifically, is very pragmatically driven, and the kinds of books that sell in the Christian market are how-to books, Right. you know, how to manage your money, how to have a successful marriage, how to 
rear your children. And, you know, I share all those concerns. Um, but uh, I think that there are more important things than technique. I think that foundational to all the pragmatic concerns that we have is a true knowledge of God. If we know God, everything else falls into place. That's really what I think. Uh, it's that the true knowledge of God is fundamental, is foundational. And really, if you know him, through the knowledge of God comes wisdom. In Christ, the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are, are to be found. And so our wise responses to the circumstances we face in life have more to do with a true knowledge of God and from which flows, as Calvin says in the opening of the Institutes, a true knowledge of ourselves. Mm. Um, we will have the answers. I guess, I guess one of my convictions is most of life is lived between the lines of Scripture. The Bible is not a book of, of medieval casuistry. It's, uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't address every circumstance of life, not, not by a long shot. And so what does it mean to love my wife and yet keep my job at the same time? And what is the priority at any given moment? That's a wisdom issue. How exactly to love her is a wisdom issue. How exactly to be faithful as an employee is, is a wisdom issue. How to balance the two of those properly. I know I'm to love my wife and I know I'm to be a faithful employee, but uh, it takes wisdom to, to know exactly how to do each of those faithfully and fruitfully. And that's not, there's not a Bible verse that's going to tell me that. That takes wisdom, and wisdom comes from God. And if it's, it's knowing God that really is going to help me with the pragmatic considerations. Super spirituality, I, I think that there's a sense in which, um, you know, we can't, because I'm a believer, I can kind of intuit what right. uh, is true and right. And because I have no need for anyone to teach me, that verse from 1 John is sort of taken out of context. And and so I just kind of have a, a, a divinely imparted sense that is disconnected from Scripture and God's own self-revelation, which is a, a, a terrible error to think that I can just sense with a kind of a sanctified intuition what's good and right and beautiful and true. Uh, it won't get me there. Yeah, it becomes very difficult not to reimagine God in our own image and to to trade the truth of the creator for some something fashioned according to our preferences or whims or false intuitions. Yeah, I remember Packer's, uh, Packer's comment on the 19th century German theologians was that it was remarkable how that their portraits of Jesus all ended up looking like 19th century <laughs> yeah, German theologians. Themselves, they were self-portraits. Um, yeah, yeah, where we are constantly tempted to remake God in our own image and to assume um, that He is as we are. So Psalm fifty, you know, uh, right. people are, are the people of, are being condemned because they thought God was altogether like they are, which of course He is infinite. We are finite, and um, He is not as we are. I always remind my students when I look at that verse in Psalm 50 that God is not complimenting them. You thought I was just like you. Uh, that, is, yeah. that, is, that is not a compliment. That is a, that is a condemnation and a warning. Absolutely. I hope I don't expose too much about my youth. You know, I brought up in Southern California, but I remember the back of the Jethro Tull uh, album. <laughs> uh, in the beginning, uh, man created God in his own image. Um, <laughs> which was remarkably insightful for knucklehead rock and rollers. <laughs> uh, but it was a, a true, you know, it was a true insight. We, we are constantly remaking, refashioning God in our own image. 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the structure of the book. I know you took your cues in many ways uh, from from earlier works, but you mentioned that there might perhaps be a volume two coming out. But why did you begin with the particular subjects that you began with? Why did you begin with the particular attributes you you began with? What was the significance of covering the ground that you covered in, in this book? And presumably, this is what you covered first when you were preaching through it. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why this had to be the starting point. I started with the incommunicable attributes of God. So I wa- wanted to begin with, um, for lack of a better term, the goddishness of God. What makes God God? Mm. What is true of him that is true of no other, that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his, in his being. And uh, these attributes, the incommunicable governing all of the, the communicable is wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So I was uh, roughly following the shorter catechism question on what is God. And so that meant that I wanted to look at the Trinity and the incommunicable attributes and then God's works of, uh, or identity as creator and uh, governor and preserver. And then went to what is generally regarded as the attribute of attributes, the summation of the attributes, which is the holiness of God. And that then led, I think, kind of naturally to justice and righteousness, uh, and from there to goodness and love. And, and then the next part is supposed to go on then to mercy, grace, patience, and faithfulness, and the fatherhood of God, the blessedness of God, spirituality of God. So there's a certain logic to it. I mean, I think that a number of the chapters could have been flipped uh, or located in other places, but there is a, a, a general progression to it from the what is true of God alone to what might be termed the harsher and more difficult attributes like holiness, justice, uh, and righteousness uh, to uh, love, mercy, grace, uh, and so forth. Terry, with uh, with some of these attributes, I imagine that some Christians uh, would say that they're familiar already with God's holiness and God's love. They know these things. Um, in in terms of how you frame them in the book, in terms of situating those with a more penetrating understanding of the divine nature and even starting it with the incommunicable attributes the way you do, um, if there's a particular weakness in our own age that you're addressing, because your book is an occasional book in the sense of you, it began life as an address to students who need these truths now. What is what is perhaps one area uh, or recurring theme in the book that you would hope readers take away in particular? To reduce it to one, that's... that's um, Maybe I've given uh, you too tall of an order. Difficult. Well, I guess... Um, or, a, I mean, or a sense that maybe readers could come away from uh, the book with well, I just think the, the the big the big picture is the idolatry itself, and I, and I, I you know and the projection onto God what is what what are my preferences, hmm. and the idea that God wants my happiness, and so He must want what I want. Um, so I guess the the big hmm. picture is I'm trying to address the idols of our time. Uh, it got, uh, you know, if I want something really badly, it must be true 
because God is good and God is nice. Um, and he must want what I want because he wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Uh, right. It's, um, you know, what Christian Smith uh, talked about, the, uh, what's his phrase, therapeutic deism. Um, Moralistic therapeutic deism. Right, right. I think that, that, I think that he's right. I think that, that moralistic therapeutic deism is the popular theology of today, and it's pervasive even in evangelical Bible-believing circles. And so I think that that has to be blown up. I just think it has to be exploded. And I think the doctrine of God is what it is, is what blows, blows it up uh, to get people to, okay, to rethink and to say, okay, I really don't know who God is. If I think that God, because he is nice, as I conceive of niceness, that he must endorse whatever it is that I really want and could not possibly want anything other than me to be happy. If that's my concept, I need to know about that this God is infinite and he's unchanging and he is holy and he is just and righteous. I just, I just need my, I need to blow up the little box that I have put God in. And that frankly was my own pilgrimage. Um, you know, I've, it's, I read, I mentioned reading, knowing God, the other thing that Packer wrote that really, uh, just, uh, just, the uh, blew up the little box was uh, reading his introduction to John Owen's death of death and the death of Christ. Um, that was published by banner of truth, um, a while back, uh, that introduction, it just, uh, it just, uh, un I was undone by it. Mm. Uh, but you know, I finished reading it and I knew that he, when he described modern evangelicalism, he was describing me, there was no question about it. And when he went on to talk about Owen's God, I, I knew he was being biblical and right. I knew he had it right. I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew it was right. And that I had to just rethink everything. And there's a sense in which I hope that that would be the case for those who have the courage to plow through identity and attributes, that it will transform their understanding of God and therefore their understanding of themselves. Because that's frankly what just about all of us need. Well, we would certainly commend this book to our listeners, and we really appreciate you giving us your time today. Well, I'm, I'm honored, and I hope it helps disperse the book. Uh, I sometimes have been overly humble and wrongly humble, I guess, in, in trying to say, you know, not promote my own book. But I mean, in, in the end, I thought, well, that's just hypocritical. Why do you write these things except you want people <laughs> to read them? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I'm glad to glad to have the opportunity to pro promote the book. I think that there's important things that are said in it. Most of them are being said by not me, but the people I'm citing. Um, and I hope it gets a gains a wide readership because there's just so much that that's valuable, that's inspiring, that's illuminating, that's challenging, that's helpful. Well, we agree. Uh, we hope it gains a wide readership as well. I've already recommended it to a few people whom I know and. Uh, and so we're glad to uh, have the time to plug it today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. James, one of the things that struck me about this book, I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but I've, I've gotten m much of the way through it and skimmed all of it, is that it's really, and, and you could tell this in the conversation, I think, that this isn't a book that he wrote for the moment. He wasn't trying to meet a market need in this book. And, and it shows there's a, there's a depth of consideration in this book that I think is, is going to serve people really well. It's not the kind of book that you'll buy on a whim because everyone tells you to, and then sort of forget about it on your shelf. 
Right. And there, there's obviously a place for books addressing the moment and the current milieu. Uh, and even as Reformed Christians right now, there is a sort of broad groundswell right now of people revisiting the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. And and uh, even we were talking off the air, Terry Johnson, about the influence of Richard Muller and especially his third and fourth volumes of post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics, for someone like me and perhaps like you, mm-hmm. we're part of a generation that came of age in the in the coming out of Muller's work. And it, it really gave us uh, the facility to go back and mine the Reformed tradition with a kind of depth and texture we hadn't before. And and Terry Johnson's work has more of that flavor of, of a serious retrieval effort at continuity uh, more than more than just simply looking at the current discussions or disagreements that we're having, and as I like to say sometimes, quick, hurry up, write a book. Everybody's talking about this mm-hmm. again. Not that that couldn't be done well. Um, certainly, there are people equipped to do that. But this isn't that kind of book. This is like he said, something to be taken in and digested a few pages at a time, and really in- internalized over a period of time, not just to answer. The questions as they are right now, but to really build a doctrine of God that is robust, lasting, and muscular. Well, yeah, and and the mention of Muller, who also revolutionized my thinking as well, is important because Johnson's book, we, we need to communicate this, Johnson's book is not like that. I mean, right, it's, it's a result right. of that kind of work, but it's not like that. It's very devotional in tone. I did not find it dense reading. Um, it's a pa- it's a pastor's work. It is, and it, and it has that. And there's a and there's a sense of which maybe maybe what Johnson helps us do is to see uh, how we translate perhaps some of what we're getting in Muller or in Charnock into a current uh, into a current pastoral message. Yeah, this could very fruitfully serve as the outline of a Sunday school uh, or of a Bible study right. or of just a personal devotional uh, time. So. We commend it to our readers, and we're grateful for your listening today, and we want to offer you the opportunity to win a copy of this book. If you go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, there will be a menu option there for you to click to enter to possibly win The Identity and Attributes of God by Terry Johnson as our gift to you. We would commend it to all of you, though. It is a very helpful uh, book, and we're grateful for your ongoing support of this ministry. If you're able to donate, you can do that on AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. There's a donate button on each of those sites, and we'd encourage you to pass the word around about Theology on the Go. Very encouraging always to hear from listeners who have benefited from the program, and we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.